This is Inside Berkeley. I'm Rob Hochschild. On this episode, we talk to Prince Charles Alexander, professor of music production and engineering at Berkeley. He teaches the art of making records to students on our Boston campus and through our online school, all while continuing to work in the industry as a producer and engineer. He's a Grammy winner and has a client list that includes Mary J. Blige, Destiny's Child, P. Diddy, Alicia Keys, the notorious B.I.G., and Luther Vandross. He's also a multi-instrumentalist and a former Virgin Records recording artist. Prince Charles, Alexander, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you, Rob. It's great to be here. So before we jump into the conversation, let's listen to a bit of the lead track from the 1981 release by Prince Charles and the City Beat Band from the album Gang War. This is Rise. Earlier, you told me that this track is the one on which you found your voice as an artist. How did that come about, Charles? When I graduated from college, I wanted to put an album out because I had been a musician for many, many years. And I was working with a producer named Maury Starr in his band, and he produced a record. And I wanted to produce a record. I was really ambitious. And uh, it already dawned on me that I needed to be the lead vocalist in whatever I put together because most of the vocalists that I knew were kind of flaky. <laughs> so I wasn't really a singer, and I modeled my first record after Curtis Mayfield, you know, doing a high falsetto. And when I started to tour behind that record and, you know, in local clubs, it was really difficult to support my voice in front of my band with that kind of soft falsetto because mine wasn't as strong as Curtis Mayfield's. So I looked and listened and and tried to find something that had a little bit more of a of a projection in it and that record really opened the door for me to to find that sound and that way for my voice to sit in a record uh and to sit powerfully in front of a band. And this record wasn't even that successful, but it was the one that was really monumental for me as an artist and I, and it it had really helped me to find my voice. So did it happen in the studio, or was it just a series of going through the music over and over again that you found yourself there with the voice? It did happen in the studio, and, uh, you know, because I know how to project, and I, my, my elocution is good, but, I, you know, I'm, I'm a musician, and I want my singing to be in tune and all these other uh, concepts of perfection that we have in our heads. And uh, what I've learned in my years as a producer is that perfection is not necessarily the goal of what we're trying to do to effectively communicate uh, as recording artists. What's more important is that there's some emotional content, some connectivity with an audience. And I think this is when I really started to understand that. So there were three records released, and then you toured the States as well as a lot in Europe. Yes. Uh, I got picked up by a European label, Virgin Records. At the time, Virgin wasn't an American label. They were only uh, a European label. And the progression, and this is the interesting thing, and that's what I try to tell many of my students and many people that want to do what I did and have a career. You've got to do it yourself. You've got to create the valuation in your product yourself. I started, I had $100. It cost us about five or $6,000 to go into the studio. 
I made a deal with Maurice to go in and he was going to produce another artist and he was going to produce me at the same time and I was going to pay the back end and he was going to pay the front. I don't know what kind of crazy deal I threw at Maurice. And he accepted it and I was like, oh wow, I got a hundred bucks, you know. And so we did the music, we produced it, it was really good sounding. I took a cassette and went around to some investors to try to get them to uh, pay the back half of the studio bill because I didn't have any money. And I was successful. Found somebody that paid the back half. That person became my manager. We distributed music in Boston. That music then got distributed in New York. And we found a local cassette-only label. Like, really? A cassette-only label. That came out. That label had a distribution in London. They heard my music in London. And Prince Charles, a black guy with whips and chains and playing <laughs> funk music... In London was just it was just too much for them to resist. They they went to it like you know like flies. It was really incredible, and it was something that I had in the back of my mind when I named myself Prince Charles. Mm. Yeah, well, it clearly resonated with those audiences and others. <laughs> what a great idea! And I love how smart you were about the business and communicating what you were trying to achieve and how that led to the the studio work happening. I guess one thing i really want to ask is with all of those experiences mine as an artist as a as a uh leader of a band as as sort of the business engine behind the band what were some of the lessons the accomplishments uh, that occurred during those days that have really informed your work that came later on as an engineer and as a teacher uh responsibility to your business endeavor uh, because we have a mantra as artists that it's art for art's sake. And if you're good, then the money will come. And in my life and in my experience, I found that to be totally incorrect. That uh, without somebody in your organization that has an, an, an eye and an ear for how this thing will be funded, your music will crash and burn and be sitting in somebody's closet and waiting for them to discover it when you're dead. And that just doesn't work for me. Um, so if there's any lesson I found out is that we have to be accountable to our artistic presence, but we also have to be accountable to our financial presence and our financial health. That a good financial health for your creativity is not a bad thing. It's, a, it, it's something that all of the great art throughout history has been funded by a patron, uh, by a brother or a sister or some family member that said, you just go do the art and I'll do the business. So I was an only child. I didn't have that option to turn to someone else in my family and say, well, you do the business and I'll do the art. So there was a part of me that had to be concerned with that so that I could continue to move my music forward. And if there's anything I would say, I, I, I tell students, I tell people that are interested in being in music, don't uh, think that doing music and trying to garner revenue for your music is a bad thing. Um, you know, Pablo Picasso was a wealthy artist. Miles Davis was a wealthy artist. The, the money didn't change their desire to want to create. The money enabled them to be able to create. And I just think that it's a, the whole starving artist thing uh, really bothers me and bugs me. And uh, anyone that talks to me knows that I really rail against that. Well, uh, it makes a lot of sense. We want artists and musicians to make money for sure. So d this leads me to the next phase of your career when you talk about making sure you make money that will support your artistic endeavors. Uh, you moved 
after moving away from the City Beat Band, you moved down to New York City. So I wonder, and you became an engineer and a, and a producer. So talk about that transition. How did that come about? What led you to, to make that move and move to New York? That's another fascinating part of my generation is that those of us that jumped into funk music, funk music was a, an ability to connect to the African-American population and to, and to a wider population, kind of a, a, a street ethic, a, an urban ethic. And hip-hop does that same thing. So my first record came out in 79, Rapper's Delight came out in 79, and I thought that uh, Rapper's Delight was kind of an abomination. It wasn't really music, it was three guys talking on a record. And over the next six years, uh, hip-hop started to gain a little bit more presence in the industry, a little bit more presence, and funk was actually trying to deal with this. Even on my first album, I had a rap. Mm. I'm considered one of the first rappers in Boston. And hip-hop was was trying to gain an importance. I didn't even understand, what is this? Is these guys talking on music? Is, what is this turntable guy? Aren't they stealing music? I mean, we were going through all kinds of things. In 1985, Walk This Way came out, and Walk This Way sealed the deal that hip-hop would be the new urban music. And here I was, sitting on top of all this funk success as an urban artist, as an urban funk artist, and saying, oh, well, if hip-hop is going to be the new urban music, then what the heck is going to happen to me? And uh, that began a period of reflection. I remember being on stage at Madison Square Garden, standing in front of 30,000 people that were screaming, Prince Charles, Prince Charles, we love you, we love you, we love you. And I'm looking at them going, oh my God, the end is near. <laughs> and uh, uh, so a lot of people would have just said, well, I have 30,000 people in love with me, so I'll just keep doing what I'm doing. I was like, where do we go next? And I couldn't figure it out for the life of me how you could sustain a funk act in uh, an era of hip-hop. So I sat and thought and sat and thought. I called a friend of mine, Nile Rogers, who was producing Duran Duran at that time. And I was actually on one of the tours with Duran Duran and Robert Palmer. And Nile was in the studio. And then I called him at 2 a.m., 4 a.m., uh, 8 p.m., 6 p.m., 10 uh, a.m. Just like whenever I called him, he was in the studio. So I said, let me reverse engineer this. Nile is doing really well. Every time I call him, he's in the studio. There must be a correlation between him being able to be productive as a musician and his relationship to the studio. How can I create that in my life? And I sat and thought and said, oh, the engineer. He's sitting there in the studio every day. Let me try to learn that skill set. Let me try to plant myself in that studio. And that will help me to at least withstand the onslaught of hip hop uh, to be able to understand what people are doing because they'll be coming to the studio to make their records. And I'll gain knowledge about this as I move forward to try to extend my own career as a producer and as a musician. Let's pause for a moment and listen to one highlight from this part of your career, the 1994 track that put Notorious B.I.G. on the map. This is yeah. Juicy. This album is dedicated to all the teachers that told me I never amount to nothing. To all the people that lived above the buildings that I was hustling from that called the police on me when I was just trying to make some money to feed my daughter. Yeah, yeah. And to all my peoples in the struggle, you know what I'm saying? It's all good, baby, baby. Check it, check it. It was all a dream. I used to read Word Up magazine. Something pepper and heavy D up in the limousine. Hanging pictures on my wall. Every Saturday, rap attack, Mr. Magic Molly Mall. I let my tape rock to my tape. That is a great track, Charles. <laughs> so 
Describe how your work contributed to the sound on that recording. You know, as I'm listening to the lyrics, it's really funny because his story is so similar to my story. You know, uh, putting things, uh, reading Word Up magazine and putting things on the wall and, you know, trying to self-actualize. And that's what Notorious B.I.G. did also. I think that uh, being an African-American engineer in the studio with an African-American artist that had a real street story to tell, I brought something out in him that might not have happened if, uh, you know, someone else was in the room with him. And I was really proud of that because I felt that my connection as an artist of the street was being mirrored by another generation in their connection to those things that were urban. And uh, I was responsible for, you know, recording the track and um, making sure that the EQ curves were correct and making sure that his voice was recorded correctly and then mixing the record and putting the record out with, with a vision, a vision for how loud his voice would be how loud the the side voices, Puffy's voice on the side and Faith Evans's voice, you know, kind of interspersed throughout the track. And uh, as simple as that feels for me, you know, those are the types of things that I'm trying to give my, to my students now. Like placement of uh, instruments is very similar to like uh, the color palette in a painting. And if you can understand how you use your blues and your reds and your greens and so forth and so on, audio is very similar to that. And how we place things in a record my goal, once I got into engineering, was to be able to make my skill as a producer translate into anything. And in many ways, uh, the, the uh, Juicy record, we, I mean, we didn't know it was going to be a hit. I, you hope that everything you work on is going to be a hit. But I'm so glad that it resonated and uh, was very powerful. And compared to maybe even some of the things that are in the marketplace now, uh, you know, I can listen to it and, and understand why it touched people. Now, I know that you went on to work on a number of hit records throughout that period, but you've told me before that eventually you became less interested in what some new artists were doing during that period, and you began thinking about a shift to academia. Now, how did you make that transition? So, literally, in order to make the transition, I had to to not take phone calls. So, I had been at Bad Boy Records for almost uh, 10 years, and the phone was ringing every Monday for 10 years. I was never a part of Bad Boy. The phone just kept ringing every Monday. We got something for you to do. We got something for you to do. And uh, the phone rang on one of those Mondays in probably 2004. And I just said I was busy. And I wasn't. And the phone rang again for maybe about another three or four or five weeks. And then they kind of gave up. And I basically spent all the money I had and sent out resumes to different schools and eventually NYU bit after about an 18 month period of like, oh my God, is this a good thing that I've done? They bit and they interviewed me and they gave me my first teaching assignment as an adjunct instructor there. And then shortly after that, I was called by Berkeley, uh, Carl Beatty, who had been an engineer in New York. Mm-hmm. It's really funny because the first day I met Carl, he was leaving New York to come to Berkeley to teach. And I said, hey, I'm from Boston. I know Berkeley. And 20-some-odd years later, Carl was the one that called me and said, are you interested in teaching at Berkeley? And I was like, uh, yeah, you know what? The time is right. Let's make that happen. And so Carl is the one that got me here, and it was the beginning of my relationship with Berkeley. And, it, and to tell the truth, it's been fascinating. I, I, I love, I've always loved Berkeley because I'm from Boston, so I knew about this place. 
And to be here to teach, to be able to participate in one of the, the world's leading uh, music institutions and one of the world's leading music production and engineering programs is kind of like that great coaching gig at, you know, one of the best basketball schools in the country or football schools in the country. So I feel blessed. Right. So now you're like Mike Krzyzewski at Duke and you're exactly. teaching the great young <laughs> players. And so one of them that comes to mind from your recent uh, students that you've taught is Charlie Puth. Yeah. Uh, that really it made a big name for himself in this past year. So I, I'd love to, uh, I want to talk about that some more, but uh, let's listen just for a moment to uh, a little bit of his huge hit from this year, a song called See You Again, which was featured in the film Furious 7. It's been a long day without you, my friend, and I'll tell you all about it when I see you again. We've come a long way from where we began. Oh, I'll tell you all about it when I see you again, when I see you again. Damn, who knew all the planes we flew, good things we've been through. It's not hard to see why that became such a huge hit this year. Charles, did you have a sense that Charlie would so quickly have a success like this? He was a 2013 grad from Berkeley. Right. Two years later, how did how do you work with students who come into the classroom already possessing such talent? Yeah, when I heard Charlie, he came up to my office hour and uh, he sat across me and he sung and he sounded like he had a compressor in his throat already. <laughs> I was like, "Well, that sounds awesome." So we worked on a couple of things. He threw some ideas at me and I helped him to sculpt and shape some of those ideas. And it's really funny because I think his Marvin Gaye uh, song is probably an, a, an adaptation of something that we had fiddled around with back in the day where I told him to listen to some Otis Redding and stuff like that. Uh, and it's really funny that it feels like even my story has come full circle through Charlie with the falsetto and the, the relationship with hip-hop and all of these things, which is kind of what I used to talk to him about. I used to say, you know, I don't care what you love, Charlie. There is going to be evolution. And you can either embrace the evolution of your craft and of your musicality, or you can fight it. And I think he really, really understood that and took that to heart. So when he was out in California and working with artists that might have been giving him hip-hop beats to work with, he didn't say, oh, I don't do that hip-hop thing. He gravitated toward it and said, let me see what I can make of it. Uh, did I think he was going to be a big success this fast? I don't know any more about the notion of how anyone can be successful other than the relationship to their desire to want to work hard. And I think that everybody that works hard at this craft can be successful. Maybe not at that, you know, quick level and that high level that Charlie has gotten to. But I think that everybody that really understands where the pieces fall can have some success if they really uh, are willing to do the work. So let's get into what happens then in the classroom a little bit more when you're teaching producing or engineering classes. How do you help your students uh, learn what they need to know? And what's your philosophy behind the way you do this? One of my philosophies is that you don't have to prove to me that you're creative. You already are creative. And the testament to that is the so many of the bad songs that we would consider bad songs that are hugely successful and hugely communicative to uh, a certain demographic. They just work. Why do they work? They just work because they work. 
something is resonating about that. So if you're a talented person, a talented musician, and you know scales and chords and all that, and you obsess over the seriousness of the music, you might miss those those simple moments of life and those simple moments of music also. So don't prove that you're creative. You already are creative. And through your creativity, if you understand technology also, technology will help your ideas um, to pass transparently through the technology and then to become what it is that you hear. Because a lot of us, we hear these things in our heads and we don't know technology. And then we get the final product and we're like, well, it kind of sort of sounds like what I heard in my head, but not really. So we have a responsibility to not just have our creative vision in line, but also our technological vision in line. And then there are three spokes of this wheel, the creativity, the technology, and the business. So I've got the creativity, I've got the technology. So what about your financial health? What, what's going on? How much money did you spend this year to be in the music business? You spent 50 grand? How much money did you make? Oh, you made 10 grand? Do you realize that you just spent $40,000 this year to be in the music business? People start to hear that and go, wow, that's right. I'm paying to be in the music business. Okay, let's do that for one year, two years, maybe three years, like a good startup business. And after that point, we've got to become accountable to the health of our, our endeavor. So in my classes, I go through rudimentary things like what a compressor is, you know, what the frequency response of a kick drum is and the frequency response of the human voice is. I go through compression ratios. I go through, um, you know, all kinds of uh, concepts about width and depth and height in music. But I also go through how to use DAWs, how to use sequencers, how to use drum machines and samplers. And I also really, really drill down to try to change the philosophy of the starving musician and say, hey, guys, you know, relax, take a deep breath and say, I want to have a musical life. And in order to have a musical life, my musical life has to be accountable to my financial health. So those three spokes of the wheel, the creative, the technical, and the financial, are kind of what you'll get from me um, in most of my classes. Because I don't see why I'm even sitting down to make a piece of music if I'm not trying to connect to people. I can make music for myself all day long, every day. And now we've got Pro Tools too? Oh my God, there's nothing you can't do. But at the end of the day, you did it for what and for whom? For yourself, for your mom, or to maybe even help our culture and, and to help music move forward into some new parameters. Uh, and if that's true, then you're going to have to engage with an audience at some point. Speaking of engaging with an audience, I know a lot of what you do in the classroom has to do with teaching around what's at the top of the charts. I wonder if you could give an example of a classroom assignment around that idea. Well, we'll take a, a song like uh, Blank Space by Taylor Swift, and uh, the first thing that we have to do is do a critical analysis of it on paper. So what do you hear? Uh, and when I say what do you hear, not like, oh, you know, um, it's a girl and a guy with a breakup or whatever. No, what do you hear sonically? What's going on with the kick drum? What's going on with the hi-hat? When does the hi-hat appear? When does the hi-hat disappear? Well, what frequencies do you feel you're hearing on the bass range? What uh, instruments do you feel like you're hearing in the center? Are you hearing a guitar? Are you hearing synthesizers? What's at the top of the range, uh, of the sonic range in this composition? Is it hi-hats? Is it crash cymbals? Let's really deconstruct this. And a lot of people are surprised that there's this one sound in the record that they only hear, you know, at, at one point in the song and it never comes back again. Um, so this ability to deconstruct and think 
about the music. Think like a producer. Okay, so now that you've analyzed it, imagine that you actually have to create this thing from scratch. And so then we'll create it. We'll go and we'll do what's called a sound-alike, where we have to find the right kick sound and find the right snare sound and find the right hi-hat, the right bass, the right keyboards. Uh, and, and I actually have some of my students sing the songs. So be, now, become Taylor Swift and sing this composition. But I don't sing. Neither could I. <laughs> you know? And we get through it. And uh, I think that ability to break the song down to its component parts, you start to find where the music is. You start to find where the musicality is, the musicianship, the, the rhythmic variations. And there's less of a distaste for popular music, I think, once you actually get into it and really understand how intricate the parts are. Now, some of my students I've been able to convert and say, oh, I love pop music. Some of my students are like, well, I'm glad I did that exercise, but I still love some thrash metal and I'm going to do thrash metal. But I would contend that their ability to hear the intricate parts, even in thrash metal, has been heightened by some of those experiences. All right. Well, one one last question, uh, sort of a parting question. What advice would you give to the musicians out there who are thinking about coming to Berkeley or thinking about coming to a place like this and studying music production? Wow. Uh, looking back on my own career, my own life, my own musical life, I've always been an entrepreneur. I've always thought that I had a responsibility to my music and that my music had a responsibility to people. Um, so t if there's any one thing I would say, m make sure that you understand why you're making music. If you're clear that you're making it for people, then understand what it is that that's interesting to people. And uh, I don't think that the Beatles created Imagine first. It was Love, Love Me Do first. Mm -hmm. And then as they became a successful idea in people's minds, then they were able to introduce them to Imagine. So if there's something great that you want to say, learn the language first of music and music production, and then evolve through the language of music and music production, and then offer something to all of us. There it is, kids. That's great advice from Prince Charles Alexander. <laughs> Charles, thank you so much for your time today. Rob, thank you for inviting me. It's, it's, a, it's a blessing. Thank you very much. You bet. This episode was engineered by Berkeley student Steve Shaw in partnership with The Burn. Learn more about Prince Charles Alexander at berkeley.edu slash faculty and about what he does as a music production and engineering professor at berkeley.edu slash MPE. Listen to more of our podcasts at SoundCloud and the iTunes Store. I'm Rob Hochschild for Inside Berkeley. <laughs>